Chapter 11 We were never friends, dude. Grant Turk, a 29-year-old convicted rapist, walked slowly down the highway, enjoying the bright summer sunshine. Released a full five years early because of prison overcrowding, he was pondering his good fortune. The last five years he'd been serving hard time in a maximum security prison. First incarcerated as a scrawny 24-year-old rapist, he spent much of his first year on his hands and knees, literally, as he was regularly gang-raped by larger, meaner, and nastier inmates. He was the son of German immigrants and had a pasty white complexion and greasy black hair. He was never much to look at, and he acted like it, usually keeping his gaze down at the ground as he slouched his way through a life of dead-end menial jobs and petty crimes. Growing up, he always imagined that he was destined for greatness. He had no idea what that would look like, as he was always a below-average student and had no notable skills and virtually no friends. But he imagined ordering people around and having people defer to him. He shook his head to try to get rid of the images from that first year in prison. He was out, and that nightmare was over. Now it was time to begin again. For the moment, he was able to control his mind enough to think of other things. The first thought was of the gorgeous 18-year-old that he had raped. He wondered whatever happened to her. He had fallen in love with her the first time she walked into the restaurant where he was an assistant manager. She was an actress, as it seemed everyone in Los Angeles was, and she needed a job. He hired her immediately, always intending to take advantage of his position to win her over. But when her very good-looking boyfriend showed up to pick her up after her first shift, Grant's plan had shifted to something much darker. Once again, he shook his head to rid his mind of those thoughts and began to focus on what was ahead of him in his life. He knew that he was required to register as a sex offender, and that this designation would severely limit his options in terms of employment and residence. Living in a small town would be virtually impossible, and he ruled out large cities because the higher costs of living would require more gainful employment than what he could reasonably expect. So, he was on the road, literally, to find a mid-sized town close enough to the city to be convenient, but far enough away to be affordable. He had hitchhiked from Crescent City, California, site of the notorious Pelican Bay State Prison, for 400 miles down to San Francisco, and then started moving east out of the city, looking for a suitable place. While in San Francisco, he scammed some tourists, stole some cell phones and computers from coffee shops, and did some minor shoplifting for sustenance. He met up with a few of the people he knew from prison, but he quickly wore out his welcome and moved on. In prison, he was one of the guys that could arrange to have the contraband smuggled in, but he managed this without making a lot of friends. He was more like a necessary evil in a place full of evil. When he had accumulated about $600 in cash from his petty thefts, he started moving east. A truck laden with perishables took him southeast, where he jumped off and began walking. He stopped in a small town that was about a hundred miles from Twin Pines and saw lots of help-wanted signs. 
It was a largely agricultural area, and there was decent transportation to other cities via train and bus. When he ran into Adolf Eisner, he knew he was going to call the place home for a while. Adolf was a member of the Aryan Brotherhood, both in prison and out. In fact, it was his association with that hate group that sent him to prison in the first place. His parents, both white supremacists, were very prominent in the movement, and his grandfather had been the head of the West Coast region of the organization. It was no coincidence that they called him Adolf. He was sent away for the brutal beating of a Jewish student when he was only 19. He was 10 years into a 25-to-life sentence when Grant showed up. They soon discovered that they had a lot in common. They were both losers on dead-end life trajectories. They were both wimpy, and they were both routinely raped and beaten by other inmates. This was most surprising to Adolf, because he expected his Aryan brothers to be more protective. It was a complete shock when they looked the other way as the Mexican gangs abused him. It turns out that the Mexicans had reached a peace deal with the Brotherhood that resulted in an unofficial exchange program. The Mexicans had the best drugs, both in and out of prison, and one of their senior members took a special liking to Adolf. Adolf initially befriended Grant as a way to deflect some of the attention away from himself. His plan was to introduce Grant to his owners in exchange for not getting raped so often. He persuaded Grant that the rapes were better than being beaten regularly. At first, Grant resisted, but after two months of almost daily beatings, he started to wonder how long he could survive. He was sure that he would eventually be killed if he didn't relent. He was right to relent because there were already discussions about killing him and his example to others. Had he not given in, his death would have been a very painful and very brutal one. Adolf became a friend and confidant because they both shared the same wretched existence, although Adolf's duplicity ensured that Grant got the worst of it. Since Grant had no idea how his new friend had ulterior motives, he was simply happy to have a friend at all. They became inseparable. They ate together, exercised together, and hung out together at every opportunity. After six months, the Mexican gang leaders even arranged for them to share the same cell. This was not out of loyalty or any kind of reward. It was just more convenient to have both of their bitches in the same cell. But it didn't matter to Adolf, and it mattered even less to Grant. Midway through his second year, Grant became friendly with Gary Get-It Pettit, the prisoner who could get almost anything smuggled into the prison. He was a triple lifer and had already been inside for 25 years. He had made his bones in the prison early, spending most of his first 15 years in solitary for fighting and murder. When he was released back into the general population 10 years ago, he had mellowed considerably and had made friends with many of the guards. He was now charming, smiled a lot, and could roam amongst the various gangs unmolested. If the inmates wanted anything at all, they had to make sure that they remained on his good side. Grant envisioned the ease with which Gettit roamed between the gangs, and the way even the guards seemed to defer to him. He decided that he wanted that lifestyle, so he'd befriended Gettit. Since he was already well-practiced in pleasuring other men for survival, 
It was a small step to do the same for Get It in order to eventually achieve the lifestyle he desperately wanted. And, taking a cue from Get It himself, Grant made sure that he was always smiling and charming when Get It was around. The older inmate eventually warmed to Grant and began showing him the ropes of challenging procurement, as he called it. The concept was relatively simple. Give people things they want in return for favors. This applied to the guards as well as to other inmates. It was also fairly political, thus the requirement to be charming. Forget it, his work was a very interesting way to pass the rest of his life. He didn't need money because he couldn't use it. He had no chance of ever leaving, so currying favor with the guards wouldn't benefit him directly. But it did allow him to live a very comfortable lifestyle. He had all the conveniences that were allowed in the prison. He was always at the top of the list for privileges and special details, and he never really had to worry about his safety. And while this would have been more than sufficient for him, he was happily surprised at the way everyone in the prison knew his name and treated him with kindness and respect. He thought that the feeling must be the reason that people run for public office. He laughed at the idea when he thought about what a miserable human being he had been on the outside. But inside, he was a king. And Grant wanted all of it. For much of their first year working together, Grant mirrored Get It, meeting everyone he knew, doing errands, making pickups, and doing deliveries. He asked the occasional question, but for the most part, he tried to be nothing more than an extra pair of hands for Get It. This was the perfect strategy in dealing with Get It. He was already pretty wary of everyone, and he could have ended the relationship if he had any idea that Grant had plans or schemes. But Grant was very good at keeping his true motives hidden. He was a good little soldier and nothing more. At a pace that was dictated by Get It Alone, he was gradually giving more responsibilities and began making deals directly for Get It. He was always 100% honest about the deals, and he never took any bribes, benefits, or side deals. 100% of everything went to Get It. He even went so far as to refuse some of the bonuses that Get It offered. He simply told him that he wasn't necessary because he was having fun and learning a lot. Get It never suspected a thing. With his new friends and a new hobby to keep him busy, the next three years passed quickly for Grant. He now knew virtually every guard's first name and the names of their wives, children, and other family members. He also knew a lot about most of the inmates. He knew what to ask, when to ask it, how to butter people up, and how to push their buttons. Shortly after he became indispensable, Get It struck a deal with the Mexicans that released Grant from being their bitch. After that, Grant simply bided his time until he reached a point where he knew everything and everyone he needed to carry on the business, without Get It. Now, all he had to do was get rid of Get It. Arranging to have someone killed in prison is not particularly difficult if one has the guts for it. Prior to his incarceration, Grant would have never considered such a move. But, then again... He had already proven to himself that he was capable of more than he previously thought he was. All he had to do was put his mind to something, like raping a waitress, and he could work his mind into a frenzy of justifications. In the case of the waitress, 
He convinced himself that he was entitled to have sex with her because he gave her a job. The fact that she was unwilling to have sex with him on her own simply meant that she was ungrateful and unwilling to live up to her part of the bargain. After enduring several years of being sodomized and passed around as a sex toy in prison, he found that nearly everything could be justified. In the case of Get It, it was particularly easy because Get It took advantage of him sexually. In fact, Grant told himself as he was getting worked up that Get It had repeatedly raped him. By doing so, Grant reasoned, Get It proved beyond a reasonable doubt that he was beyond redemption. In fact, Grant began patting himself on the back as a righteous citizen, ridding the world of an unrepentant, unremorseful, violent criminal. The more he thought about it, the more he honestly believed that it was his duty to execute Get It, thus saving the taxpayers the $60,000 or so each year that he continued to live. In the end, there was no doubt in Grant's mind that he was going to be a hero. Of course, Grant had no intention of letting anyone know that he was behind it. He saw no cowardice in this. He simply told himself that a true hero doesn't need to receive credit or kudos for their unselfish acts of heroism. By the time his plan came together, he was 100% convinced that he had no choice but to kill Gedit. The reality was that Gedit was, in fact, very remorseful. The long years spent in solitary had given him a lot of time for reflection and regret. He had relived all of his crimes from his very good memory, and he forced himself to reevaluate all of the choices that led to the crimes. Not that it mattered to anyone else in the prison, including the guards. He was content to keep his revelations to himself and maintain his reputation as a badass. But deep down in his heart, Gedit was truly sorry. He didn't need to thump a Bible or blather his remorse to the clergy or apologize to the families of his victims. He didn't even need to share his stories with the new, younger inmates that had a chance of eventually returning to the world. It was enough for him to acknowledge his actions and accept his punishment. Anything else was a waste of time. But in his own way, he used his relationship with Grant which he thought had evolved into a genuine friendship, to leave something positive in the wake of pain and suffering that he had caused. Over the course of the five years they worked together, Gedit had taken great pains to teach Grant subtle lessons in ethics and morality, and he almost always eschewed violence, even when it might have been warranted. In his capacity as a getter, he preferred to remain neutral in the face of a very divisive environment. By refusing to take sides, he could avoid the violence and even serve as a peacemaker of sorts by leveraging his power to manipulate various tense situations. He simply told people that violence was bad for business when he encouraged his clients to find other ways to resolve their differences. He wasn't wrong about this. A riot or killing always resulted in a lockdown. No matter how much favor he curried with the guards, he could not do business in a lockdown. To all outward appearances, Grant was a willing and attentive student. So it was a tremendous shock to get it when he felt the blade plunge in and out of his kidneys and lower back as he and Grant walked to the showers on a sunny Sunday morning. 
He thought that it was probably merciful that the tenth or eleventh stab had partially paralyzed him, because he felt much less pain. He was still aware of several more stabs, but they didn't hurt as much as the first few. As he fell to the hard tile floor, he saw the look of joy and satisfaction on Grant's face. He imagined that it was a similar expression to the one he wore during his own murders. Killing another human being was exhilarating, even more so when done by hand in close quarters. As his life pumped out of his body through his multiple wounds, he was grateful to have enough energy to ask a simple question of Grant as he stood over him. Why? I thought we were friends. And, as the last thirty seconds of his life ticked by, he smiled at Grant's response. We were never friends, dude. It was always just business. Get it thought he nodded. He tried to nod anyway. He understood. It was impossible not to understand as he looked into the dark, dead eyes of his former pupil. He understood that for whatever reason, Grant was dead inside. What he had mistaken for a decent guy who had made a terrible mistake was instead nothing more than a polite mask covering the face of evil. He remained smiling as he briefly thought that maybe it was his mask as well. But he banished that thought as he remembered that as despicable as he had been in his life, he always had the balls to look someone in the face when he killed them. He never stabbed them in the back, literally or figuratively. Never. He always thought that people deserved to see it coming. All of the sudden, Gedit was very tired too tired to keep his eyes open. So he let them close on the image of Grant's crooked, evil smile. No matter, Gedit told himself. He was out of the game now. Whatever was to happen to Grant would be out of his hands. And this was just fine with him. He had had enough of killing in his life. He had no doubt that sooner or later he would get to see Grant again in hell. The thought of hell made him wish that he had the energy to laugh. Thinking of it made him realize that he had always believed in hell. It was that belief that encouraged him to go on living, even after realizing his mistakes. He wanted to live so that he could delay going to hell for as long as possible. As he became aware that he was no longer breathing, he actually repented it probably wouldn't have reached the level prescribed by the Catholic Church as complete repentance, but in his mind, he asked Jesus Christ to forgive him for his numerous sins and for the pain and suffering he had caused, even as he accepted the fact that he was on his way to hell. In the ultimate irony, those that believe in a forgiving and benevolent God would say that Gedit's repentance would be accepted and that he would be forgiven. To those people, the timing of his confession was much less important than the fact that his contrition was genuine and heartfelt. They would say, had they been there to witness it, that his sins would be absolved and he would indeed be granted entrance into heaven. As it was, these thoughts never crossed into Gedit's mind. However, he was vaguely surprised at the feeling of peace that passed through him. 
He was also quite surprised that the last physical sensations he felt were his lips. He was acutely aware that his lips were curled into a smile. Then he saw a bright white light and died. <laughs>